So Kurt and Julie are, I think you mentioned this last week, but they are with family. And so he's taking care of his family. They are eagerly awaiting a granddaughter that should be here anytime. I haven't heard anything unless one of you have heard something. I haven't, so I don't believe she's here yet. But um, can you just imagine Kurt as a grandpa, first of all? Like, they are going to, and Julie, they are going to spoil the heck out of that kid, right? Like, honestly. Um, so they're away, and while they're away, we've got some guest speakers. Uh, today is uh, no stranger to our platform. Um, I think, uh, Jeff, did you say, what did you say he was earlier? Yeah, it's something real spiritual that was really good. Yeah, that's all. He's spiritual and good. Something about one of your favorite people. Um, Godliest and most intelligent people he's ever met. Wow. Um, so I love Eric. Eric and I are uh, just, uh, sorry, my threefold, but we're in a twofold um, as well. And so we get, to <laughs> it's okay, Roger, we're, we're calm down. So Eric and I get to have lunch. And what I love about my time with Eric is just, um, he, he's got a quiet wisdom to him. And so often I feel like our lunches are me venting about life and my job. And, and he just is so calm and just listens. And then when he speaks, he speaks with authority. And that's what I love about that. And so I believe that when he comes up to speak, he's going to speak uh, with authority that's given to him from God. I believe that he has a message for us and that God is going to use him this morning. So can you please welcome Eric Lee this morning? So I got to say, um, am I on? I should be on. Hey, I didn't touch it. <laughs> I haven't touched it either way. On? Hello? He's on. I'm on. Okay. You got him? Testing. One, two, three. Good. Yes. Okay. okay, good. So I got to say that uh, Justine totally stole my entire sermon, so we can just go home. <laughs> All 27 pages of what I have to say here is completely useless. We can just throw it out because she covered the whole thing. But um, I actually, I'm... I'm Really excited about the way that God pieces different uh, voices together to assemble a message that he wants to give us. And I think you'll see as we go through today that uh, he has been doing that uh, with Justine, with Kurt last week, and with other things as well. Okay, so uh, we're in the series called The Summer of Soap. And for anyone who has not been here uh, so far this summer, we'll get you caught up a little bit. So soap is the name for the uh, devotional practice that Lake Sam encourages everyone here to, to do. Uh, there is a schedule of Bible readings, and you can find that either online or it's printed, I think, back on the back table there. You can grab a copy. Uh, and SOAP is an acronym, and it stands for four things that uh, take you not very much time to go through, but we do it every day or weekdays, Monday through Friday, with this scripture that is set out for that day. So the first thing we do, S, is to actually read the scripture. There's a passage from the Old Testament and a passage from the New Testament. They're not super long. O is for observation. So you read through there and you think about what God is saying in those passages. Um, and in particular, we look for something that uh, catches our eye. We call it a speed bump sometimes. Uh, something that either is, uh, you know, seems kind of funny, like we don't understand it, or something that just seems really relevant to where we are right now. 
And then we, uh, we, we read the passage. We might read you know, ahead or behind the passage, or that might trigger in our minds uh, another passage somewhere else, and we go read that. And so we're just observing what God is saying. And then the A is application. So once we kind of understand what God is saying in this passage, then we say, well, God, how should that change my life? How should I take that inside me and actually get to know you better and have more of you. And then P, finally, is prayer, where we talk to God about what we learned, what he told us, and we reflect that back to him. We listen for him to tell us things. Okay, so uh, we're going to do a soap this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Kurt asked me to, uh, to preach because he was going to be out of town. And so I looked ahead in the soap schedule to find the passages that I would have to, uh, to, to choose from. So we're going to talk about the first, the scripture part of the soap. Uh, now, I was really excited because when I looked at the schedule, I found that we were moving into the book of Ephesians. Now, I love the book of Ephesians. You know why? Because in Ephesians, no one is in trouble. No one's getting yelled at. Okay, the whole book is just Paul going, you guys, you guys, it is so amazing. God is mind-blowing, and I want to tell you all about it, and I want to pray for you so that you understand it, and you get a hold of that too. I love Ephesians. And so when I saw that was on the schedule, I thought, this is going to be great. This is going to be an easy sermon. This is going to be so cool. Um, then I noticed, oh, well, the Old Testament passage is in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is a train wreck, so we're just going to stay very far <laughs> away from that, right? Well, as I started reading the passages, it turned out the very first one, Monday morning, Jeremiah, the very first thing I read was the thing that God wanted me to speak about. Um, so after much arguing and whining, I sat down and read, uh, wrote an outline. And this was two weeks ago. And then last week, I came to church, and Kurt told basically the same story that I just told, right? He said, oh, I didn't want to preach out of Jeremiah because the summer of soap is supposed to be light and fluffy and you know, easygoing, and then now we're going to go into this terrible, horrible book that is like everyone's going to die. Um, but he went there because he was obedient to God, and it turned out that his message was actually the perfect first half to what I have to say today. And I didn't write mine based on listening to his. I had already written my outline before that. And so I was listening to him last week going, wow, God, you are so amazing. This is really cool. All right, so let's talk about the passage in the speed bump that I found. So here's, here's the, uh, the passage that was Monday of this week, Jeremiah. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them yourselves. When I led your ancestors out of Egypt, it was not burnt offerings and sacrifices that I wanted from them. This is what I told them. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything as I say and all will be well. But my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backwards instead of forwards. 
From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, I have continued to send my servants, the prophets, day in and day out, but my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful, even worse than their ancestors. So tell them all this, but don't expect them to listen. Shout out your warnings, but do not expect them to respond. Say to them, this is the nation whose people will not obey the Lord their God and who refuse to be taught. Truth has vanished from among them. It is no longer heard on their lips. Shave your heads in mourning. Weep alone in the mountains. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken this generation that has provoked his fury. So, yay. So exciting. <laughs> um, here's the part that really got my attention. That, uh, that God said, here, I want you to focus on this. I want you to talk about this. this is, it was this part right here. Take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them yourselves. When I led your ancestors out of Egypt, it was not burnt offerings and sacrifices that I wanted from them. I was talking with uh, someone in the church about this passage uh, last week, and he was reading it, and I was saying, yeah, that's what I'm going to preach on. And... Um, he will remain nameless, but let's just say he looked at the part that said, uh, take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them themselves, and he went, huh, oh yeah, I bet God had a more colorful metaphor in mind there. <clears throat> um, what does God mean when he says, I don't want your sacrifices? Now, clearly, God was not saying, Oh, you know, this whole sacrifice thing, big misunderstanding, not what I wanted at all. Uh, you know, you can quit doing that because I, I didn't ask for that. That's, that's not the heart of what he was saying. We know that it wasn't because actually he spent quite a lot of effort to tell Israel how to do the sacrifices, right? When we look in uh, Leviticus, this is, these are just the chapter headings I pulled out of the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And you know what? I'm not going to read all the stuff because there's a lot of stuff, but Leviticus 1, procedures for the burnt offerings. Leviticus 2, procedures for the grain offerings. Peace and sin, and then he goes into more elaboration and all that stuff. All the way down to, you know, chapter 7, uh, details, uh, you know, a portion for the priests. Um, in chapter 1, he starts this way. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. And then in verse 9, this is a special gift of pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then it keeps going like that for seven chapters. And all the way down in chapter 7, it says he ends... These are the instructions for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, as well as the ordination offering and the peace offering. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses on Mount Sinai when he commanded the Israelites to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so the offerings, the sacrifices, are something that are very important to God. But then here in Jeremiah, he is telling the nation of Israel, don't do it. Don't bother. I don't want them. And what God is really saying is, 
I don't want them in the context that you're offering them to me right now. And this is a big deal for him to say, don't even bother. Because the sacrifices were not just a trivial detail. They weren't just uh, some you know, mindless instructions that he gave to Israel. The sacrifices were central to the whole relationship that he had with Israel because the sacrifices pointed forward to Christ. Because Christ would be the sacrifice in the future. The, the ultimate sacrifice that would atone for our sins once and for all. And the sacrifice system that he laid out in Leviticus was pointing forward to that. So this was not just uh, a, a, a side issue. This was something central. But something had gone so wrong that he said to Israel, don't even bother to do them. So, then as I was reading the scripture, the question was, well, what happened? What went wrong? What should we learn from this? So, that's the puzzle that I want to work on solving this morning with you. Um, and so, I'm going to pause here and uh, have someone pray for the sermon. Because I could really use it. <laughs> He's right there. Awesome. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless the sermon. We ask that you bless the congregation and continue to bless Lake Sam exceedingly and abundantly. And uh, last but definitely not least, please reunite my friend Ron with his daughter. Mm. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, so God said, I don't want your sacrifices. But he did say something right after that. Sorry, we're going into the observation phase of, of soap. He did say something right after that. He said, this is what I told them, Israel. Uh, Obey me and I will be your God and you'll be my people. Do everything as I say and all will be well. So, that's, that's kind of interesting because, I mean, technically they were obeying, right? They, God told them to do the sacrifices, and they were doing them, so they were following his instructions. But he says, you know, stop doing that. Stop doing what I command you to do. I want you to obey me. And so clearly God has a distinction in mind here. And this is not the first time that we've seen this, right? In Samuel, we have the story of King Saul. He's about to go into battle. He's very worried. He wants God's blessing. He wants a sacrifice offered for God's blessing before he goes into battle. But God tells him, I want you to wait until Samuel arrives. Samuel's the priest. And Samuel will offer the sacrifice for you. And Saul's, you know, pacing around. And he's looking at his watch and, and looking at, you know, the army assembling. And eventually he says, that's it. Samuel's just, Samuel's not coming, or I don't know what happened. I'm just going to go ahead and do it myself. So he does. And as soon as he finishes, Samuel shows up, because I think God kind of timed it that way. And Samuel says this, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Um, so I think what we need to ask is this question. Is following instructions the same as obedience? I thought, wow, that's a really good question when God brought that to my mind. 
And I think anyone who's been a parent can quickly answer that question, right? How many of you parents out there have told your child to go do some chores and you get into a little fight about it and finally they're like, fine, and they go stomp off and they're you know, slamming cupboards and you know, muttering to themselves and, rah, 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 and they're, they're doing the chores, they're doing what you ask them, but their spirit, their way of doing it is so horrible that eventually you say, you know what, forget it. Just go to your room, just stop. Okay, I know that I asked you to do this thing, but you're doing it in such a way that is offensive to me. Stop it. Just leave. Okay, how many parents have had that experience? I have not, of course, because my children <laughs> would never do that. Right, but all of you other parents, okay, thanks for raising your hands. <laughs> um, so, okay, so what we learn here is that real obedience is not just about actions. Real obedience is about sincere compliance. It's about trust. It's about believing that what you've been told to do is actually the best thing to do, is in your best interest. It's about our hearts. It's about having a relationship so that obedience is an expression of love and trust to the person that we have a relationship with. Um, so that was not happening at this time in Jeremiah when God said, stop doing the sacrifices. So to understand why they were in that situation or how they got there, we're going to do a quick history lesson. Okay, so you have... Um, a little prior to Jeremiah's time, there were some kings of the nation of uh, Judah, the southern nation, that were pretty terrible. And there was a king, Manasseh, who actually was, uh, he was unspeakably horrible. Okay? It says in 1 Kings that he led the nation into acts of evil that were even worse than the acts of evil that had been committed by all the nations around them that God had already destroyed because they were evil. And now Judah was being even worse. Okay, King Manasseh uh, set up uh, altars to idols all throughout the land, and he did so in the temple. Okay, this is Solomon's temple that was built, dedicated to God. He actually built altars to false gods in the temple. And then he went into the temple, and he murdered his own son in a satanic human sacrifice ritual in the temple. Now, I can't really imagine how you can get worse than that. Or at least I certainly don't want to work on trying to imagine it. Okay, and as an aside, it's really interesting to me that God did not just completely wipe those guys out just right then. Just, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, just nuke them all, we're done. Um, but God has patience. He has patience way longer than we think that he should have patience. Um, as it, it was kind of a, a travesty of justice, I guess, but King Manasseh uh, lived a full, long life, unfortunately. He ruled for 55 years, and he was evil the entire time. And then he finally died, and his son Ammon became king, and Ammon was just as bad. Uh, in fact, he was so bad that his officials quickly murdered him. 
And then they put uh, Ammon's son, Josiah, on the throne. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Uh, he, uh, I think, was uh, you know, assisted by regents as he was a child. But when he, became, when he came of age, it's really interesting that Josiah seemed to have a conscience. And I don't know where he got this from because he certainly didn't have very good role models, right? His father, his grandfather, the entire nation was unspeakably evil. But somehow Josiah knew this isn't right. And I don't know, maybe it was a story kind of like, uh, you know, Prince Caspian. You guys, you know, read the book, seen the movie where you have the, the prince in the castle and there was the wise old advisor who was secretly teaching him about God's law. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe Josiah was just open to God's spirit directly. Either way, when uh, Josiah became a young man and began to rule in his own right, he began to tear down the altars that were built throughout the land. And then about five years into that, um, he was convicted that the, the temple was still in ruins, basically, or you know, was, was a, a wreck. And so he said, we're going to raise a bunch of tax money, and we're going to devote a significant investment to cleaning the temple. So they go and do that. And in the process of doing that, the workers find some scrolls, which are the, the law, the books of the law, that have been lost. People haven't read them for generations, but they were scrolled away somewhere in the temple for safekeeping, and they rediscover them. So they bring the scrolls to Josiah, and uh, he has the, the, the law read to him, and his response is to God, oh, this is what we've been missing. God, this is what you commanded us to do. And so he falls into immediate repentance, and he completes all of his work of, of cleaning the land, the entire nation. They throw out the false prophets, and they turn back to God, and they reinstitute the sacrifices, they reinstitute the feasts and the, the holy days and all of that. They assemble the whole nation together, and the whole nation has the same response. They repent, they turn back to God. Okay, so this is great. This is a good story. But what happened? Because now we have Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Josiah. We're reading in chapter 7, and this is probably, it's hard to tell, but probably, I don't know, 10 to 20 years maybe after the temple was clean. And Josiah, or uh, Jeremiah, is going after these guys. He's saying, you're doing it wrong. Well, to understand how they got from amazing revival to these terrible words that we read in Jeremiah, we need to back up and actually look at the passage just before the one that we read. So here's the start of chapter 7. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go to the entrance of the Lord's temple and give this me message to the people. This is a, the entrance to the temple. See, that was a temple that had been cleaned, and they're still using it. But uh, give this message to them. O Judah, listen to this message from the Lord. Listen to it, all of you who worship here. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds, if you start treating each other with justice, only if you stop exploiting foreigners and orphans and widows, only if you stop your murdering 
and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think that you can steal and murder and commit adultery and lie and burn incense to Baal and all those new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all of those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all of the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, wow. I think what we see here is that the people were still following the law that they had discovered, that they had read, that they had repented and turned towards, but the change that they had instituted was actually only skin deep. It had not actually reached their hearts. Um, they, were, they were going through the motions. They were, they were being perfunctory in still showing up and offering the sacrifices, and they were saying, well, okay, I did that. I checked the box. Now I can go off and live my own life the way I want to. So they were starting to reintroduce uh, re idol worship. They were starting to exploit foreigners, the poor, the orphans, and the widows. They were, you know, murdering and lying and stealing and, and doing all of these things that was not God's heart for them. So they would come into the temple and they would say, well, we're safe, obviously, because we have the temple here. And the temple is like some kind of magic talisman or the fact that we're coming to the temple is, is, a, is a shield, is a protection that makes us safe. So safe from what? I don't know, safe from the nations around, safe from God himself because you know, we're technically doing what he says so he can't actually smite us. Well, I think what we need here is you know, a voiceover. We need Kevin Perales to do his, his little movie voiceover. You know, they weren't. Because they weren't safe. And God was trying to let them know that. Okay, so I have a question. How many of you know what a cargo cult is? Have you heard that term? A few people have. This is interesting because it's, it's actually pretty common uh, in my circles at work. And for some reason, no one else has ever heard of it. Okay, so this is great. I'm excited because I get to explain something to you that will be useful. So... <clears throat> um, it comes from something that happened in the South Pacific during World War II. So here's a picture. It's a little blurry because I couldn't find a big one. Uh, during World War II in the South Pacific, you had all these Pacific Islanders who were happily living on their islands and doing their thing. And then one day, these strange men showed up and started carving long strips of land in the jungle. And then a little while later, these big metal tubes magically came out of the sky and they started unloading stuff, right? Metal pots and canvas and knives and all of these cool things. And the Pacific Islanders are like, this is amazing. We never imagined that this stuff existed. And so I think it really helped to, you know, increase their standard of living. This is great. But a few years later, the strange men stopped coming and the big metal birds stopped coming and everything disappeared and they're like hey wait 
You know, we kind of got used to this. We want it back. But they didn't really understand what had been going on in the first place. So what they did was they started building uh, airplanes, something in the shape of an airplane, out of sticks and grass. And they would set them on the abandoned airstrips uh, in hopes that maybe something that was kind of a similar shape would attract the thing that they wanted to have. Okay, and this, this really happened. I actually, I, I thought for a minute, maybe this is just like an urban legend or a meme or something, but I went and looked it up. It actually did happen. Uh, and it actually continued for decades afterwards. This was not just a momentary thing. Um, so, to be a cargo cult, when we say something is a cargo cult, here's what we mean. It means imitating something that you don't understand the real purpose of in a wrong or broken way, trying to create a result that you can't possibly achieve. Or to put it maybe a little more simply, the substance of a thing matters more than the shape of a thing. Okay, the Pacific Islanders, they were building radios out of boxes of wood and putting coconuts over their ears, trying to talk to the airplanes to try to get them to come back. And they didn't understand, not their fault, no one had explained it to them, but they didn't understand that you have to talk to someone on the other end. And that person has to know who you are, has to have a relationship with you so that you can communicate back and forth. Okay, does everyone see the, the, the metaphor here? Am I being a little too heavy-handed? Um, so this is why God was saying to Judah through Jeremiah, Keep your sacrifices, I don't want them. He wanted Israel to perform the sacrifices in the context of love, in the context of real obedience. Um, he wanted love and grace and mercy to pour out from him to his people, and he wanted his people to respond in love and adoration and worship back to him. And when that wasn't happening, he's saying, I'm not willing to let you cheapen this thing that is so important to me, that's so precious to me. So God is not willing to settle for a cargo cult. He is, uh, he is demanding that we have a holistic relationship with him. Now, God is actually really hardcore about this. In Isaiah, he says this about a different people at a different time, but it's very similar. The Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. And then in Matthew, Jesus tells this story, which frankly should be terrifying to all of us. Not everyone calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. See, God's not satisfied with a business transaction. He's not satisfied with us doing something that we don't really understand, trying to get a result that we can't actually achieve. He doesn't want cargo cult religion. He wants everything that we do to be about him all the time. All right, so that was the observation. So, good sermon. Let's all go home. 
because the application uh, was something that I really struggled with. Um, honestly, it was difficult for me to write this, and you know, with my preach call with Kurt yesterday, um, it went all right, but I actually, based on, on his feedback, I had to stop and, and rewrite a bunch of this, so we'll see how it goes. But I think God is trying to say something really important. He's trying to say it in love. Um, but he really needs for us to hear it. So this is where I say, the way Kurt does, Lord help me. All right, so in January of 2015, uh, Kurt gave a word, a prophecy to the church. And you know, Kurt he, he's a, he does a lot of teaching, and he gives us, I think, a lot of words from God, a lot of insight from God. But he actually doesn't prophesy in the sense of, thus saith the Lord, very often. But he did this time. And what he said was this. He said that God was lifting his hand of protection from our nation to a degree so that we would suffer some of the consequences of our actions so that we would turn back to him. God said that this will be a substantial season of time, probably years, many years, and that God is smashing everything that we think is solid so that, we, uh, so that the only thing that we have left is him, and that we will realize that he is the only solid thing in our lives. Okay, that was, that was a pretty difficult word. And I think we're seeing now, two and a half years later, it is still unfolding. Kurt was right. This is, this is a significant season in our lives. It's going on right now. It will continue to go on. And God is doing many things with many people. Um, I think when we're reminded of that word, sometimes our instinct is to say, oh, well, okay, God is saying he's going to smash those people, Right? Whatever, you know, fill in the blank, those people you might have in your mind. But God isn't, God did not give that word to us to say, hey, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm going to, you know, take care of those people for you. He gave that word to us because he is going after us. He's going after the church. Okay, in First Peter, it says, the time has come for judgment and judgment begins with God's household. It begins with the church first. God isn't going to do anything with the world that he hasn't already done in his church. He's going after the American church in general, and he's going after Lake Sam in particular, and he's going after each of us individually. God is calling everyone to repentance. So here's what I think God wants to say to us through Jeremiah to extend that prophecy, that word. God is saying, I want you to stop covering up your lack of real relationship by looking busy with Christian things. You look passable, you look respectable on the outside, but on the inside, you're hollow, or at least you're not all the way full and you're not being effective as salt and light to the world because you're not reflecting me. You're missing the whole point. In 
Jeremiah's day, God's people were saying, well, we're safe because the temple is here. The temple is here. And they used that as an excuse to be lazy about their devotion to God. Now, it was absolutely true that they did have the temple in Jerusalem. It was a fact. And that they were worshiping there. That was a fact. Uh, but they were missing the true heart of it, as we've already discussed. They were using it as, I think, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, they were going through the motions, and they weren't understanding God's heart. Okay, so question now is, what's the parallel for us? What is our version of temple, temple? Well, I think maybe some of these. On a, this is on a personal basis, on an individual basis. Some of the things that we use to cover up our insides and we point to and say, but look, I'm following the instructions. Okay, I'm, I come to church on Sunday. I'm safe. Well, great, but when you come to church, are you doing it with the attitude that I'm going to encounter God and I'm going to encounter my brothers and sisters and get to know them? Well, I read my Bible and I pray. Well, great. But are you doing that with the expectation, with the eager desire to talk to God, to have him talk to you? Well, I, you know, I give money. I, I serve the community. I go on a missions trip. All of those things are good. Okay, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying they're bad. They're good. God commanded us to do all of these things. But he had a certain context in mind. He had a certain heart in mind. He's saying you can't just do them as a cargo cult religion, just going through the motions, expecting something to happen when you don't understand how it actually works. Okay, substance matters more than shape. So just like God cared deeply about the sacrifices, he cared passionately that they got it right because the sacrifices pointed to Christ he cares about all of this stuff, too, because all of this stuff is supposed to nurture us. It's supposed to pour God's love into our hearts. It's supposed to enable us to pour our love into other pe people's hearts. And when that's not actually happening, he doesn't really want it. Jesus said it this way, again in Matthew. The teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Okay? We have, we have instructions to pray and read our Bible and go to church and go on missions trips and, and do all these things. But if they're not coming from this, it's, it's pointless. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians. We all know this passage, right? But let's read it again with an eye towards what God is saying this morning. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything that I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others... I would have gained nothing. Now, I want to be very clear. God is not asking us to do more stuff right now. 
Okay, yesterday in the preach call, uh, Kurt asked me a good question. He said, well, what's going to be your call to action? You should ask people to do something, and which was a good question. But I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, no, for this message, for this time this morning, God is not asking us to do another thing. God is not asking us to go, you know, get involved in an, a new, you know, community service organization or whatever to demonstrate that we have love. God is saying, the things that you already do, I want you to reflect. I want you to look inside, and I want you to discover whether or not you are doing those things out of love. If it is necessary for you to do less stuff so that you can quit covering up your issues and that you can really expose your heart, then do that. Do less stuff. Sorry, Kurt. But you know what? I, he, he, I can guarantee that he would totally agree with that. Um, so this is a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to self-reflect. And I want to just give you a, a call to action and say, you know, just go do this thing and everything will be better. What I'm actually asking you to do is to be self-reflective, which is hard. So now as the, as the, the last thought, I want to raise our focus up a level. We've been talking individually. I want to talk about the collective body of Christ, the church about Lake Sam as a church, and actually about the whole American church. How is the church in America doing today? Uh, Justine read something when she was talking about communities that was uh, heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And I think God wants us to, to ask these questions of ourselves and of the church local and church universal that we are part of. Are we seen by the world to be loving God with all of our soul, our strength, and our mind? Are we known right now for loving our neighbors as ourselves? Does the world actually know that we are Christians by our love? Is that really what's going on? I think sometimes, yes. Okay, I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to say, you know, Everyone is screwing it up. Everything is terrible. But I, but I am trying to communicate God's heart that there is stuff to work on. We are not where we're supposed to be. Now, when we ask, does the world see us as loving, I think maybe we might have an initial reaction that says, well, of course they don't see us as loving because they don't want God, right? They're turning away from God. That's why God is judging the world, American culture, because it's rejecting God. And so, of course, they're rejecting us, only to be expected, right? No reflection on us. And there is a grain of truth in that because American culture is rejecting God right now. But we are complicit in that. The church is complicit in that because we have not been the salt and light to the world that we need to be. Instead of focusing on love, loving God and loving others and demonstrating that in such a visible way that they can't possibly deny it, we get hung up in causes, we get hung up in slogans, we get hung up in other things and then we're not really about love anymore. And here's the thing. The world can tell the difference. They know. 
They know when we're not doing it right. They know when we're actually kind of doing a cargo cult religion at a national level. And so, no, they don't respond to God. Yes, they are rejecting God. And that's on them, but it's also on us. So what are the, some of the things that we do? I think different parts of the American church have gone in different directions. And each one of those directions is wrong in some way or another. Okay, Some parts of the church, some denominations have gone uh, really into you know, social justice and community service and really ministering to people. That's not wrong. God commanded, commands us to do that. But if we do that to such an extent that we forget to tell people God wants to change your life, God wants to change not just your physical living circumstance, but God wants to change your heart, then we're missing the point. If we reduce God to just an abstract idea rather than a real living person, a being who is glorious and holy and righteous, then we've missed the point. Other parts of the American church have gone in a different direction. We've chosen to emphasize uh, morality and ethics and our Judeo-Christian heritage. And we try to hold ourselves to the highest standards of integrity which is good. God says, be holy just as I am holy. That's a commandment. But he wanted, wanted that to be done in a certain way. And if we focus on that to such an, uh, an exclusion point that we start to reject people who don't measure up, when we start to hate the people who are different than us, who don't look like us because they're not lining up with our personal standard, then we're doing it wrong. We have a cargo cult religion. So God wants to get us to a place where we can look at these questions here about the church and answer them with a resounding yes. He wants us to be able to say, yes, we are demonstrating love for God. Yes, we are demonstrating love for people. And that is clear to them. Now, we might say, how can I possibly affect that, right? You're talking about things at a national level now or, you know, a, a community level and more than just me, like I'm just one person. How can I possibly contribute to that? Well, I think we can do two things that are practical. The first is each one of us interacts with people throughout our day, Christians and non-Christians. Uh, it might be people that we work with at work, might be people that we see in the grocery store. It might be someone that we catch an eye of as we're driving in traffic. And no, we can't directly, I cannot personally and directly change people's minds about the church. But I can demonstrate God's love to the people that I interact with directly. Okay, the, uh, a, a culture, the culture of a group is only the sum of the cultures of each individual in the group. And so when we interact with people, we need to be showing God's love. We need to, before we open our mouth to say things, we need to ask ourselves, is this really what Jesus would say? Is this really what Jesus would do? All the time. And I am 
I am humbled and I am blessed that I have had the experience, my, my family has had the experience of having non-Christians friends come to us and say, I'm not a Christian and I will probably never be a Christian because all Christians are horrible. But you guys, you're different. And you kind of make me want to listen again, a little bit. And I say that not to, not to toot my own horn, but just to say it was, it was an eye-opening experience when that was said to me because I went, oh, this can actually happen. I can actually start changing opinions. I can start changing the heart of the culture around me one person at a time. And I don't do it perfectly all the time. I have, honestly, I have had the opposite experience where things just go horribly wrong because I haven't navigated the situation the right way. That happens too, but I'm trying to do it right. The other thing that we can do, the other thing we can do is to participate in the conversation, the talk internally in our church about how we should live as a corporate group. Um, so I'm going to say this right. When you see the church doing things that are not right, that don't line up with the Bible, they don't line up with Jesus' heart, stand up and say something about that. Now, there is a lot of yelling going on in our culture right now, right? With politics and everything else. Yell, yell, yell. Everyone's yelling. So I'm not telling people to just contribute to the yelling. You know, go out there and, you know, fight the, fight the battles on Facebook and the, the, you know, 50 message long threads. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you hear people speak, when you hear people up here on stage preaching, when you hear me preach, think about what you're hearing and say, is this God's heart? And if it is, encourage it. Say, this is great. I support that. And if it's not, gently correct it. Okay? Silence is often complicity. If you want to change the church so that we can change our culture, we have to be active. We have to be involved. All right. So God is challenging us right now. This was a really hard message to write. It was a really hard message to preach. And I thank you all for sticking with me. I can look out in the audience and I can see that you're listening and that you're processing. And I appreciate that. God is asking for something that is so easy. It, 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 it's easy to summarize. He's asking us to just love to love fully and completely, but hey, that's not easy at all, is it? It's really hard. We try to hide behind all kinds of other things that look like love, but they're really not. So we need to kind of look, we need to strip those away, we need to look underneath, and we need to find that core of real love. God is saying to us, come back to me and be my people again. He's saying, fall in love with me again. That's what God is saying. So prayer is the last part of the soap. At this point, I want to ask uh, Pam and the band to come up. 
and I'm just going to play a little bit of background music. And I want to spend a few minutes in silent contemplation, silent prayer. Because like I said, I'm not calling for action in terms of go out and do something more. I'm calling for action for you to turn inwards, to examine yourself, and to talk to God about what you find there. And I expect that you'll find some great things because, you know what, Lake Sam is a fantastic body. We already have so much of God's love in us. We do. That's the reason why you are all here. But there's more. There's more that could be. And I want you to talk to God about what could be. And after a few minutes, we'll do communion. down in front of you and grab communion cups. First cup is the bread which represents Christ's body broken for us and that was the love that he 
poured out to us. You might be asking right now, how can I even have love in my heart the way that God is talking about? It just, it's not there. I don't have it. God broke himself, offered himself as a sacrifice to cover all of the stuff in us, to, to break the things that are in us that keep us from that. Take this cup and think about what God did for us. that he wants us to have. He doesn't expect us to manufacture it. He's giving it to us right here. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you are filling us with your spirit, with your love, with your holiness. Take this.